Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And uh, today we're going to be talking about not just extinctions, but we're going to be talking about Roman extinctions. Extinctions that occur during uh, the time of the, the Roman Republic, but especially the Roman Empire. That sounds like a, one of those names for like a made-up lewd act, the Roman extinction. The Roman extinctions, <laughs> maybe so. Good band name, certainly. So, Robert, I know you wanted to talk about this because of some weird, uh, maybe false memory you had that you were trying to explain to me <laughs> yesterday. But uh, it, it seems like a very apt topic, whatever the inspiration, because, of course, all decadent empires uh, place large stresses on the environment around them. Absolutely. Uh, so you would expect the, the, the you know, one of the great decadent empires of history would do the same. Yeah. So I think one of the important things to keep in mind throughout this topic is, like, we're not... We're certainly not meaning to single the Romans out as being like the like the the, the sole examples of some of these activities that led to uh, uh, to some extinctions, mm-hmm. um, because ultimately you can look to various parts of the world in various times, including our own, to see plenty of extinction-inducing activities. But it, I think it's an interesting exercise to sort of look to, to look at Rome, uh, which which would have been, I think, in many ways, sort of uh, 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 an intensification. Of um, of impulses that were already present in other cultures. Mm-hmm. So uh, to to get started, let's just remind everybody uh, who the Romans were. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that <laughs> what have the Romans ever <laughs> done for us? Yeah, I mean, well, speaking of that, yeah, um, you know, I don't uh, for reasons like that. I think that we don't really need like a full introduction. I think pretty much everybody has some idea of who the Romans were and what the Roman Empire was about. I mean, just the basic tropes uh, of of the Roman Empire are pretty, uh, you know, ubiquitous in our culture. Um, look to, for instance, to Monty Python's Life of Brian, uh, which you just quoted, uh, which, by the way, has been singled out for being actually quite historically accurate concerning concerning life in Roman-occupied first century Judea. Yeah, I've, I've read that before. A lot of historians think it's more accurate than a lot of serious movies. Right, yeah, because, they, you know, a lot of depictions of Rome, they really, especially the older cinematic uh, interpretations, but even like more modern uh, films that were influenced by those older interpretations, you just get like this stoic, colorless, very British uh, vision of Rome. Uh-huh. Uh, generally, not a lot of like street level understanding. Um, but, but that's one of the reasons that uh, HBO's Rome series that was on for several years, uh, uh, you know, which isn't perfect, uh, but certainly had some admirers because of the way that it uh, injected a lot of, of color and, and, and life, often like street level life, uh, into this time and this place. Uh, I've also read uh, that uh, Kubrick's Spartacus is, uh, is more accurate than a lot of the films that, that you would have encountered in the 1960s uh, regarding the Romans, but of course still has a number of problems as well. I mainly just remember Joe Pantoliano and The Sopranos being mad at it because Kirk Douglas has a flat top haircut. <laughs> and he's like, they didn't have flat tops in ancient Rome. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but by the way, I, I always enjoyed the ancient Roman uh, detective novels of Gordianus the Finder by uh, Stephen Saylor. Um, uh, I highly recommend those to anybody. They're, con- to be clear, contemporary novels uh, set in ancient Rome. Anyway, we're, in short, we're talking about an empire centered in Rome, established in 27 BCE after the collapse of the Roman Republic, which was founded in 509 BCE. 
and eventually grew, grew rather rather sizable uh, and actually rather difficult to manage due to its size, stretching across Europe, the Balkans, uh, the Middle East, and North Africa. It's the classic risk problem. You overextend your armies, you go out too far, you think you can hold all of Asia and get those whatever, you know, 50 men at the end of each turn, mm-hmm. but it's, you overextend. Yeah, it's the problem you see in every empire uh, without fail. And, uh, and since they were an empire, they were, of course, built on military conquest and domination of other lands. And, uh, and to be fair, the characters in Monty Python are mostly correct in their list of the, the quote-unquote uh, good things that the Romans have done for us. Um, you know, uh, we've, we've, we talk a lot, especially on our other podcast, Invention, about various Roman innovations, Roman technologies. Talked about sewers and toilets. Sewers and toilets. But, of course, they didn't just bring sewers and toilets They all, and, and roads. They also uh, brought death and bloodshed. Uh, they depended on slave labor. And uh, we can at least uh, lay some of the Holocene extinctions uh, at their sandaled feet. Uh-huh. So that's what we're going to focus on today. And, uh, and just fair warning that we will be talking uh, in places about the Romans' uh, trade in exotic animals and their uh, harsh treatment of these animals in the, in the arenas and in the Colosseum. And this is all bloody and depressing stuff, uh, cruelty to animals on a massive scale. So uh, just, you know, sort of fair warning on that. And, uh, and just a reminder for uh, information on how to report cruelty to animals today in the United States, please visit the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals at uh, ASPCA.org or search for uh, Report Animal Abuse ASPCA. That being said, uh, let's move on to the extinctions. Okay, let's hear about it. So one of the articles that we were looking at in preparing for this uh, episode is an excellent 2016 Atlantic article titled The Exotic Animal Traffickers of Ancient Rome by Caroline Weiser. And in it, she points out that uh, bloody animal spectacles were an important part of Roman culture. Mm-hmm. Like, it, you know, it wasn't just, uh, you know, something that was also going on. It's not like, say, pointing to today's culture and saying, like, uh, uh, look, at, look at the popularity of, say, uh, mixed martial arts. It's central to the American experience. It's, I don't know. You could maybe make that argument, but... It's not just a thing in the culture. It's like an integral part of the culture. Maybe you're saying, like, you can't really understand the culture without it. Yes. Yeah, and uh, I believe that's the point she's making. Um, so I think most of us are familiar, more familiar with human-on-human gladiator sports, uh, which we've we've touched on uh, on this show before. Mm-hmm. And it's in, you know, any thanks in large part to Ridley Scott's Gladiator in modern times, but so many different treatments of gladiatorial combat have been rolled out in our media. Uh, but it wasn't just human-on-human violence. You also had uh, Dominatio ad uh, bestias. Is my Latin correct on that, Joe? It uh, looks like damnatio ad bestias. I mean, I'm not an expert either. Okay. But, but damnatio, right? Like damnation? Well, <laughs> it, anyway, it stands for execution by beasts. Uh-huh. And then there were the venationes, uh, or the hunts, in which animals were condemned to die either at the hands of human hunters um, and sometimes, like, just we're talking like just a brutal display of like a hunter dispatching all sorts of exotic animals uh, out there on the field, or they would have uh, animals battle each other, all for sport. And sadly, these uh, these blood sports have been a part of human civilization for quite a while, and though thankfully outlawed in most places, but still 
Cockfighting remains uh, legal uh, in parts of the world, as does dogfighting. Sports like bear baiting and lion baiting continued depressingly far into modern times, at least in some parts of the world. And bullfighting remains legal in parts of the world as well, uh, namely Spain and Portugal. I would say it's not quite the same because it doesn't involve vertebrates, but, uh, I mean, even the bug fights thing on the Internet, I'm sure you've seen that. Oh, yeah, um, uh, where, where, like, uh, crickets or uh, beetles are made to combat each other. Or centipedes or spiders. I mean, it's just basically you put two kind of scary-looking bugs into a container together and then shake it and try to make them fight. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't know what exactly that impulse is. I mean, there's a part of it I guess I understand because I remember when I was a kid, I would very often want to ask adults questions like, what would win in a fight between a tarantula and a scorpion? Yeah. And like as if I thought like adults just know these things, you know, that, yeah, you're grown up, you'd know which one would win. Well, it, there is kind of like a, a neat, there's a human necessity to to rank and profile the creatures of the natural world. Uh-huh. And you still see this kind of thing in, in like kids books today. Like my son has a book. Uh, like who would win, and and it's it's about prehistoric creatures and dinosaurs uh-huh. uh, and all good educational information, but it's delivered uh, with the the, the wrappings of uh, of this creature versus this creature. So I was not alone in this childhood curiosity. No, I think it's. I mean, I think there's something you know normal and healthy in it. I mean, I mean, look at nature documentaries, mm-hmm. uh, the, which can be quite uncomfortable to watch at times when you have uh, a predator and prey battling each other. Um, right. But, of course, one of the key differences here is that these are natural occurrences, or they, they better damn well be natural occurrences in a nature documentary, and they're not something that has been orchestrated through cruelty by, uh, by uh, humans uh, looking for entertainment. Right. Putting animals into the, the Roman arena is kind of the equivalent of the bug fight. Like, you put them in the box and shake it and try to get them fighting. Right. So, I think this is, though, an, an example of where you know, if uh, you know the Roman cruelty uh, to animals uh, via blood sport, it's it's an outsized and more sensational example of something that occurs uh, in other cultures and in other times. Uh, it's not an excuse for any of this, but again, it's important to ground such activities in the larger picture of human awfulness. Mm-hmm. But uh, Wazer actually opens her article with a discussion of uh, Roman orator uh, Marcus Cicero and his correspondences uh, with a former legal client, a man by the name of Marcus uh, Calius. This is while Cicero was governor of uh, Cilicia in modern-day Turkey. Mm-hmm. So basically, um, Calius just continued to hound Cicero about how he needs him to have some hunters capture and send back some local leopards, which they refer to as Greek panthers. Okay. Because he needs uh, – because he's, he's like, you got to give these to me, Cicero. I've got to throw them in the arena. The, the people love this, and I'm trying to kickstart my political career here. Come on, don't let me down. And it's just – it's like multiple correspondences where he's just really hounding Cicero over this. And uh-huh. Cicero keeps dodging him on the matter and saying, well, look, the, the, you know, the, the, the local hunters are busy, you know, et cetera, that's, that sort of thing. Uh-huh. It's like, can you get Mick Jagger to come to my party? Yeah, I mean, it is. It's like imagine if instead of when you see an individual running for political can- uh, office today, uh-huh. instead of, of it being a situation of them trying to score, say, Neil Young or, you know, the guzzlers to, to play their event, if instead you were trying to procure uh, exotic animals to massacre each other in, in a public arena. But it speaks to how important this was to at least uh, a large segment of the population. Mm-hmm. And so this was something that would have been practiced in uh, 
you know, in, in the Roman Republic, but, uh, but then reached, you know, new heights in uh, the uh, Roman Empire. Uh-huh. But, it, but it also is important to note that, like, not everybody was completely on board with this. Uh, Wazer shares descriptions by, uh, by Cicero that describe it as being, you know, uh, barbaric and unnecessary. And, uh, and uh, there are also some descriptions by uh, Pliny the Elder as well, uh, con- which I think we can, we can trust him a little bit more here because he's, con- he's dealing with domestic matters and not uh-huh. mysterious species that he has no firsthand knowledge of. But, uh, oh, the, Pliny will get vindicated a little bit later on in this episode, oh, yeah. too. But, but in this case, uh, Wazer points out things that they were both writing about how Pompey the Great organized uh, a series of spectacles. Uh, but but what, like the main event, essentially, was a great elephant hunt in the arena. Oh, no. And it's inter- interesting in the, uh, in the accounts that show that, that while individuals like Cicero viewed these shows as bloody and cruel, uh, the crowds generally loved it. But the elephant hunt was even too much for the masses. And here's the, the quote from Cicero, uh, obviously translated, that she shares. Quote, the last day was that of the elephants, on which there was a great deal of astonishment on the part of the vulgar crowd, but no pleasure whatever. Nay, there was even a certain feeling of compassion aroused by it, and a kind of belief created that the animal has something in common with mankind. Hmm. Yet they kept watching, huh? Well, yeah, they kept watching, and uh, but uh, apparently felt awful about it, and there were you know some uh, some boos and and whatnot. And of course, this didn't prevent later elephant spectacles from taking place, and and ultimately, indeed, like the continued uh, trafficking of exotic animals is the focus of Wazer's article. Uh, there was this booming industry for folks who would arrange the capture of exotic wild animals, generally from the extremes of the empire, and then transport them back to Rome to fight in the arena. So it was a cruel business, uh, but enthusiasm for, the, enthusiasm for the spectacles in the arena also also bubbled over into enthusiasm for the details of the actual hunts and the tactics that procured them. And this is reflected both in the literature of the day and also in, uh, in the art of uh, the Roman Empire, where you see murals and whatnot depicting uh, individuals hunting these uh, wild animals so they could bring them back. And that, that the wildness of it was something that the Romans seemed to, to crave, she points out, because the... Um, uh, they, they, they weren't, there weren't really that many attempts to try and uh, raise them in captivity. Right. They had to be captured and brought back to Rome. Yeah, and that's part of the appeal. I wonder if the idea about the, the methods used in hunting them, does that show up later in the sort of styles of gladiators that appear in the arena? Because I know we have like the – there was the style of gladiator that's modeled after the fisherman, oh, you know, yeah. that has like the trident and the net and all that. So there are certain styles that seem to be – uh, based on on like the armies of opposing uh, nations or mm-hmm. or on professions like fishing, I wondered also if that uh, the the hunting methods that they talked about with these animals contributed there. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, it might very well be the case. So she doesn't get into that in this paper, and I didn't see it mentioned in some of the other more animal focused sources I was looking at here. But you know, obviously, the the gladiatorial um, tropes that they used. Uh, in the arena, they were all, you know, based on existing things, you know, be it, uh, be it a fisherman or, a, uh, you know, a soldier or, you know, some sort of animal component that was uh, going to be echoed in the design. So let's come back to the elephants, though, because okay. I think because so far that's been the most alarming, um, you know, obscenity that we've looked at here uh, on the well, part of the Romans. Yeah, it, it's interesting that passage that you read from Cicero where, you know, he's describing the crowds feeling sympathy for the elephants while they watch this brutality being done to them. I mean, I wonder if there's more of that kind of thing going on in the uh, the 
appetites of the Roman uh, arena audiences than we would normally imagine. Like we imagine the audiences of the gladiatorial games and all this kind of stuff Mm -hmm. just being, you know, bloodthirsty. Like, yeah, they want the fight. They want the violence and and they love it and they're eating it up. I wonder if there was some element of the audience that – I don't know. It, it's something more equivalent to to the kind of like hate watching or the hate clicking kind of thing huh. that people do now. Like where you know people are constantly clicking on things on the internet that they know are going to make them unhappy. Yeah. You know, you just reliably know if I click this link, I'm going to feel bad and I'm not going to like what I read, but I click it anyway. Hmm. You know, I, I wonder were people going to the arena like I know I'm going to feel bad, but I have to look at this. Huh. You know, that would be might be worthwhile to come back and explore that in greater detail, like the the nature of uh, these gladiatorial blood sport events, um, which uh, we should stress are, are generally they were a lot more varied and complicated than uh, is often relayed in popular media, mm-hmm. but still were were violent blood bloodthirsty events, you know, what, what was the, the psychology of that? And then how much of that psychology still remains uh, in the fandom of various, uh, you know, uh, high-impact sporting events or, uh, you know, actual mixed martial arts or other martial arts contests or even simulated um, athletic uh, contests such as professional wrestling. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I have to come back to that, I think. But uh, one thing that Wazer also points out is, you know, that, that like there were there were, there were artistic uh, uh, renditions of, say, um, uh, big cats that were used in some of these events. And they would be given names in the art. And they would be kind of, uh, there would, like you know, some of the iconography would be akin to that that would u- be used for human gladiators. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, it, it gets it, it gets sticky. And, and then, I mean, just thinking about the elephants and the obvious connection, like the obvious intelligence that is there in the elephant and the sympathy that, that one feels, like this, uh, this kind of connection like has existed throughout, I think, our, our experiences with elephants. And yet cruelty to elephants continues to this day uh, and, uh, you know, has certainly continued on through the, you know, the history of, uh, of circuses uh, around the world. So, mm-hmm. um, I, yeah, I mean, our relationship with animals is always complicated, even uh, when we have, uh, you know, sympathy actually activated for them. Well, I know you wanted to explore more about ro- the Romans and the elephants. Yeah, so I, uh, I found a book titled Elephant Destiny, Biography of an Endangered Species in Africa by Martin Meredith. And in this, the author details uh, the slaughter in the Roman arenas uh, in general uh, in, the, in the opening of uh, Pompey's games in the 55 BCE. Uh, and he mentions that no fewer than 600 lions were massacred. And just to give everyone a, an idea of the scale of, um, of bloodshed here. 600 lions. Yeah. Can you imagine? I mean, a lion is, a, a lion is an apex predator. So there already aren't that many of mm-hmm. them. Yeah, you know, and to then, remove 600 lions from their habitat. Yeah, to essentially like basically put out the call and say, look, Pompey the Great needs lions. So everybody that is in the, in the business of catching lions or could conceivably catch a lion, get out there and start catching lions, essentially. Uh, and, and this, but this would have been just before the elephant event described previously. So what elephants were they catching? Well, uh, the author here points out that the North African elephant was, uh, was the likely species, as these were the elephants used by the forces of uh, Hannibal's uh, uh, Carthaginian army. The African bush elephant uh, uh, that is still around, um, th- this one is too wild to, to ride around or to really tame in the same way that one uh, uses uh, uh, the Asian elephant. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, and uh, not to just uh, you know to single out uh, Carthage, uh, other um, groups used uh, the North African elephant for labor and war as well. Uh, but anyway, following Hannibal's defeat, the region fell under Roman control, and the Romans used these elephants in their bloody sports, uh, as well as in attractions that really have more in common with the sort of circus work that we see, uh, you know, throughout even you know, like the 20th century. Uh-huh. And, th- and that includes things like tightrope walking. Uh, Weird. Yeah, they single, he singles that out uh, in the book. Uh, but uh, here's a quote that touches on uh, uh, the, the additional levels of exploitation that get, uh, become employed. Quote, Rome's liking for elephants meant that the North African herds faced constant raids. But even more perilous was the insatiable Roman demand for ivory. Ivory was used to decorate temples and palaces, carried in uh, triumphal processions, and made into a vast range of luxury goods. Thrones, chests, statues, chairs, beds, book covers, tablets, boxes, birdcages, combs, and brooches. Caesar rode in an ivory chariot. Seneca possessed 500 tripod tables with ivory legs. What do you need that many tables for? Large (laughs) events, large-scale events, I guess. Caligula gave his horse an ivory stable. Wow. I'm glad we got Caligula in there. I wasn't sure we were going to actually uh, uh, be able to make room for him. <laughs> so that being said, some of the ivory came from India and Ethiopia, but North Africa suffered the most. And in 77 CE, Pliny the Elder wrote about the shortage of African ivory. Quote, an ample supply of ivory is now rarely obtained except from India. The demands of luxury having exhausted all those in our part of the world. And of course... Um, the ivory trade still remains a threat to elephant populations, uh, despite laws and the hard work of, uh, of conservationists worldwide. And if you want more information about uh, what's going on and what can be done, I uh, recommend everyone check out stopivory.org for more information. Okay, but what was the ultimate effect on the elephant populations? Do we know if the Roman exploitation of these animals, did it did it damage their populations? Did it drive them extinct? The general it, consensus is that it, uh, it, it definitely drove their extinction. They either died out during the 5th century or at least were well on their way to extinction. But the damage was done uh, during the, the Roman imperial period. So it wasn't necessarily that we know that the Romans like hunted down the very last of the North African elephants, but it, they may whatever they did to them damaged their populations enough and all that that we think it strongly contributed to their decline. Right, and that's something we're going to see in some of these other examples we, we bring we, we bring out as well, is that th- there are other cases where it's certainly not in a situation where the Romans just went out and had uh, killed or had killed all members of a species, but they, you know, they had the, um, uh, the power uh, through their, their appetites, through their, uh, their economic uh, uh, demands to actually like do this much damage to the environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, with the, the Roman Empire, everything that was already present in, in human uh, uh, civilization was there, only maybe ramped up a little bit. Uh, so their destructive tendencies you know, had, had a little more reach than you might find in uh, other civilizations. And of course, the same thing can be said for today. Uh, there are various uh, human appetites and uh, our various wants and desires and our uses for the natural world that uh, at the scale we're doing things now are even more destructive uh, than they ever were. Yeah, it's a sad fact, and it's going to come up again in some of the other stuff I've got here. It's it's sometimes striking how similar the patterns of, of civilization-level activity are mm-hmm. uh, between things that we do today and the things the Romans did to exploit their environment. Yeah. All right, well, on that note, let's go ahead and take a quick break. 
And when we come back, we're going to continue to discuss Roman extinctions. All right, we're back. So, so Joe, what, uh, what is the next organism we're going to discuss here that was made to, to fight gladiators in the arena? Well, uh, it's not. It, this next one is a plant, but this is going to be uh, one of the main examples that, uh, that people often bring up as something that was likely driven to, to extinction by the Roman Empire. So uh, my main source here is an article from Conservation Biology from 2003 by Ken Perejko called Pliny the Elder's Silphium, First Recorded Species Extinction. Now, the author, Ken Perejko, I looked him up. He was a professor of biology at the University of Wisconsin-Stout. I think he's retired now. But in this uh, essay, the author asked the question, how do we know when a species has gone extinct? Uh, in the words of E.O. Wilson, quote, extinction is the most obscure and local of all biological processes. Mm. Uh, it took me for a second and then I realized, oh yeah, I guess that must be true. Whenever the last ones disappear, it's always kind of a local and isolated phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, like a lot of these cases, it's it's looking to when was the last recorded like dependable and recorded sighting or killing of a particular organism. Yeah, and so the author writes, quote, the question of how many species extinctions have gone unnoticed in human history is unanswerable, yet the past may shed light on the present, on what in our behavior has changed and what hasn't. So he starts off by talking about our old friend Pliny the Elder. Now, remember, of course, so we know the timing, the, the Pliny the Elder's natural history was first published around 77 CE. And so Pliny, uh, in, in one section of his natural history, dives into an expl explanation of a sort of miracle plant that he calls sylphium. The plant is described as having plentiful, kind of stubby, thick roots, a fennel-like stalk, blade-like leaves that resemble parsley, and then at the top, the stalks have an umbel. When an umbel is a, a cluster of short flower stalks all clumped together so that the flowers kind of resemble a parasol. You've probably seen plants like this, Robert, mm -hmm. where they've got sort of a little dome of little flowers all clustered together. So the Romans called it sylphium. It was also known as sylphion by the Greeks, uh, as well as laserwort uh, and laserpithecum. Uh, and, and from this plant, apparently, you can create a resin that is called laser, L-A-S-E-R. It might be pronounced laser. I don't know, but I'm going to say laser. Uh, so this resin called laser, Pliny describes it, quote, as among the most precious gifts presented to us by nature. And you could get this resin by making slits in the roots and the stem of the plant so that its juices and its sap would leach out. And then those juices and the sap would be dried into a resin to produce laser. Pliny cites a Greek author, probably the philosopher Theophrastus, who was a student of Plato and Aristotle's on the origins of the plant. And the Greek author claims that the plant was discovered in the 7th century BCE after a black rain fell upon the gardens in a region of North, North Africa known as Cyrenaica, which is now Libya. Perechko writes, quote, It grew most profusely in a region of that country known as the Silphiofera near the Gulf of Syrtis, 
There, where the plateaus along the Mediterranean coast rise as tiered highlands that receive considerably more rainfall than the deserts to the south, Silphium thrived in a region of hilly and forested meadows. Uh, so we're almost getting this picture of this pristine, you know, lush little area with a desert to the south, the coast to the north, that has all these little plants with the fennel-like stalks and the parsley leaves and the umbel of, of flowers near the top. And in ancient times, silphium had a number of uses that uh, recommended it to Pliny as a kind of miracle plant. And among these uses, documented by Perezko, number one, it was fed to livestock like cattle and sheep uh, under the idea that it gave their meat a special desirable flavor. Hmm. So okay. you really wanted you wanted your mutton to be fed on silphium. It tasted way better, apparently. Uh, the, the plant parts could also just be cooked and, you know, used in, in cooking. Uh, like the stalk could be used or the resin could be used. It was also used medically as a laxative, you know, so for fast, effective relief, you go with silphium. <laughs> but the concentrated resin called laser, which was, which was made from the plant, was considered even more useful. It could supposedly treat fevers and coughs, and warts. Mm. It was believed to be a pain reliever and a hair restoration tonic. Okay. And apparently, as I mentioned, it was sometimes just also used in cooking. And there's also another huge use for this plant, which was that it was apparently believed to be a contraceptive and abortifacient. And so the juice or resin would be applied to a piece of wool and then used as a vaginal suppository as a contraceptive or abortifacient. And uh, contraceptives and abortifacients were highly desirable in ancient Rome. They were largely sought, sought after for, of course, many of the same reasons that they have been throughout all of history. Absolutely. So uh, apparently a laser was in such demand that there was a widely acknowledged problem of unscrupulous merchants selling low-quality, adulterated laser. You, uh. you cut that laser, buddy, you know. It's like uh, the scene in the movie where the guy gets in trouble for, for cutting the Coke with baby powder or uh -huh. something, you know. This is, this is cutting the laser maybe with, uh, with asafoetida or something like that. So uh, Perezko notes that within Gaius Petronius's first century CE fictional work known as the Satyricon, there's a scene where an Egyptian slave sings a song from what is apparently a well-known contemporary musical farce, and this musical farce of the day is called The Laser Dealer. Uh, so you get huh. a sense that the laser dealer of ancient Rome, uh, the ancient Roman Empire, might have had a reputation sort of like the used car salesman of today who's trying to give you, you know, get you to buy, to pay too much for something that's not worth what you think it is. Okay, because, yeah, I mean, ultimately, we're not talking, this was not FDA approved. There was not, no. you know, like a system. You were you were going to, you know, essentially an apothecary or just somebody who had a supply or claimed to have a supply of the uh, the the the, um, the laser that you needed. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, if you didn't trust them, if, if they were a little sketchy, they might be cutting the product or selling something else, you know, that they're calling laser. And think about what people were using this product for. I yeah. mean, it's something that if you, you got something that was an inferior product that didn't work as well as you thought it would, you, you might be facing serious consequences. And so here's the weird fact. We don't know for sure what plant species Pliny was talking about. It, it was this hugely important, commercially important plant, and we don't know for sure what it was. Uh, there is a plant genus in North America called Silphium, but it's apparently not related. An author named Rackham in 1950 suggested that Pliny's Silphium might have been the species called Ferula tingitana or Ferula marmarica. 
which are North African plants that still exist today. Or, of course, it could be an extinct relative of these. But that's just Rackham's suggestion. It's widely believed that the Roman Empire may very well have driven this miracle plant to extinction. So how would that be? Well, already in his day, Pliny complains that you can't really get silphium anymore. He notes that in the year 49 BCE, Julius Caesar ordered the stockpiling of 1,500 pounds of lasers, just the resin, Mm -hmm. in the royal treasury. Uh, But by Pliny's own lifetime, remember Pliny, this is published in 77 CE, so this would have been just about 100 years later in Pliny's lifetime. By this time, the plant had vanished in its natural range, and the last known stalk of it, quote, being valued at its weight in gold and sent to the emperor Nero. And, I'm, you know, you're, I'm sure Nero did something awesome with it. <laughs> so what's the reason for this decline and disappearance of silphium? Well, Pliny says that uh, number, the main explanation Pliny gives is, quote, tax farmers who rent the pasturage and strip it clean by grazing sheep on it, realizing that they make more profit in that way. Okay. And to be honest, I, I'm not positive I understand what Pliny's saying there, what that means, but I think possibly it refers to the fact that meat from the livestock that's fed on silphium got a much higher price because it was believed to taste better. Okay. Uh, so, so you could get more money for the, you know, upgraded meat, but this is, you know, this decimating your silphium fields. Okay. So in a, in a way, like there are just multiple demands on the product because it was used for so many things, uh, including uh, people who just want to graze their animals on it and produce superior meat. Yeah. Right? But it all comes down to like to demand for the various products, direct products or products that depend upon the silphium. And there were limited habitats in which silphium would grow. Uh, so Perezko also offers some other thoughts about what, have con- what could have contributed to the decline of silphium. Uh, and a chief concern he raises is habitat destruction. Mm. He says that a very popular wood for uh, Roman furniture came from the thuon tree, which filled the forests of Cyrenaica. And over-harvesting of this wood possibly led to deforestation of the area that is now Libya. And in turn, this led to soil erosion. So without tree roots to hold the soil in place, you know, the soil erodes in in rainfall or in the wind or in anything, um, which destroyed the silphium's natural habitat in the hilly meadows near the coast. So there you've got a couple of unsustainable practices coming together to conspire for the demise of this plant. He also points to unsustainable farming practices in the region, which were aimed at short-term profits, but which came at the long-term expense of soil quality. Uh, Also, he says there are historical records of political conflict over silphium in Cyrenaica. Um, So in, in the region, in this region during the Roman Empire, there were like there were native tenant farmers and then the rich Roman landlords. And as silphium became scarce, the Romans tried to put tight control on the production by saying only they could farm it on their lands. And they put fences up around the meadows where the silphium grew in order to keep the locals out. But Perezko writes, quote, the natives practiced a kind of agrarian terrorism mm. by tearing down the fences and letting their flocks graze on the silphium to increase the value of the sheep's mutton. And then also apparently sometimes they would just go into the fields in the night and just uproot the plants, just pull them up by the roots, kind of as a middle finger to the Roman overlords. You know, oh, wow. Romans go home. Another thing uh, that's a possible explanation here, apparently the Romans were obsessed with garlic. Oh, well, we still have that. Well, yeah, and I don't often side with the Romans, but I cannot fault them there. Garlic is great. 
Yeah, I mean, I, garlic, not only is it um, a, a wonderful uh, culinary ingredient, but it, I mean, it has a number of different uh, uh, medicinal uses and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, 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 in herbal traditions. Yeah, um, it's so, an antimicrobial property. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so uh, Parishko writes, quote, Garlic was such a popular plant with the Roman army that it was said one could follow the advance of the Roman legions and expansion of the empire by plotting range maps for garlic. <laughs> Uh, so the Romans in Cyrenaica also apparently destroyed some silphium habitats so they could plant garlic locally. Hmm. Uh, and so the question is, did silphium fully go extinct in the first century CE or not? Some scholars have argued that silphium was cultivated at least until a few hundred years later in the fifth century uh, because there are references to it in some later writings. Like people have you know, were writing letters in the fifth century CE talking about having silphium plants. But these references could very well be to uh, what what Perechko calls pseudosilphiums, other plants that were incorrectly identified as silphium and had been for a long time, or also for a long time had been combined with laser resin to adulterate it, or had simply been sold as fake silphium by yet another unscrupulous laser dealer. Yeah, you know, this is something I, I was reading about recently in another book about just, um, you know, is is as ancient peoples moved around, mm-hmm. there might be a traditional uh, plant that they depended upon. And as they move out of its range uh, and, uh, and sometimes, you know, take it with them to some extent but then lose it, they have to find new substances that uh, will fulfill at least some of the properties or they hope will fulfill some of the properties. And sometimes you just give it the same name yeah. or, um, or, you know, or, or a similar name. Exactly. Uh, and, you know, and not all plants can follow you outside. of. The, I mean, some plants are very particular mm-hmm. about their native range and, and can't be really grown outside it very well. And it does appear silphium is one of those. Uh, but in the first century CE, other plants and spices were being recommended as a substitute for silphium. Like uh, Perechko cites a Roman cookbook from around 20 CE that recommends asafoetida as a substitute for laser in recipes, presumably because real laser was already really expensive or hard to get. Uh, so ultimately, we don't know for sure whether or not the species Pliny is talking about actually went extinct, but it seems pretty likely. It's got a limited natural range, subject to habitat destruction and overexploitation, as well as intentional destruction. Uh, and the author ends by saying, either way, it, it's interesting and sad to see the exact patterns of human behavior leading to extinction of plant and animal species today have been with mm. us for thousands of years. I mean, this almost re- reads like a like a, a parody of, you know, modern stories about how we, we overexploited certain plants and animals. Absolutely. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to discuss a few more uh, Roman extinctions, or at least in some of these cases, extinctions that were uh, greatly contributed to uh, by the Roman Empire. All right, we're back. Okay, can we talk about bears? Yes, let's talk about bears. Uh, the Atlas bear is, um, by some estimates, a notable victim of Roman civilization and the civilizations that followed in the wake of the Roman Empire. Uh-huh. Uh, these were the brown bears of northern Africa, and their extinction can at least be partially attributed to the Romans, though we have to stress here it didn't truly go extinct in the wild in the wild to the late 19th century. So sometime later. <laughs> to be sure. But so we're saying that uh, maybe the Romans did stuff to uh, contain its range or something like that. Yeah, or certainly really kick-started the uh, tradition of, uh, of exploitation uh, and, and habitat destruction that uh, would reach, you know, its final form 
uh, in the uh, 19th century. Mm -hmm. Uh, So basically what happens is um, when the Romans expanded into the Atlas Mountains of modern-day Morocco, the bears were hunted for sport, and they were captured for transport back to the arenas in Rome as well. Mm -hmm. So we're talking thousands and thousands of them. Again, you know, when we're talking about the, the trade in exotic animals, it's not just like a few a few individuals here and there catching a few curious creatures and sending them back. You know, I think it's easy to fall back on, uh, uh, you know, certainly a lot of this took place during, uh, you know, the time of uh, European colonialism as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, a lot of times it brings to mind pictures of, say, like the hold of a ship with a few different animals in it or something like that. Uh Uh, But no, we're talking like tons and tons of creatures here. Um, Thousands. Thousands. I mean, th- again, thousands of bears. I mean, it's yeah. not like there are all that many bears to begin with. Right, yeah. And uh, and so the initial depleting of their numbers uh, put them in a terrible position for a centuries of habitat la- loss and deforestation to follow and also continued hunting, which was ultimately bolstered uh, by the development of modern firearms. And the, apparently when you look at the the like the, the the, the last known sightings of these animals, they pretty much line up with modern firearms being uh, available. So that that just pushing the hunting over the edge. Um, uh, th- this made me think a little, bit, though, about bears and human extinction. Uh, it, it was once theorized that prehistoric cave bears were hunted into extinction by humans. Uh, but it doesn't seem to be uh, that this was actually the case, or at least this is not the predominant theory now. Uh, you know, these were largely... Uh, herbivorous creatures, uh, and they might have just been too much for ancient humans to really tackle on a regular basis, and human numbers uh, might not have been sufficient to pull off that kind of extinction at the time. Uh, So we can't lay their extinction entirely at human uh, feet. Uh, I'd love to come back and discuss cave bears uh, or or other prehistoric bears like the short-faced bear uh, in the future, but it is interesting to, to sort of think of that in terms of the scaling up of human activities. Like, you know, there were there were times there were certainly there were certainly animals that uh, you know that, that 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 early humans contributed to their to the extinction of uh, you know no doubt about it. But if 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 populations are smaller, uh, there's less that can be done uh, towards uh, pushing an animal's extinction. Right. Now another animal, a creature you might not expect to show up uh, on this list, is the ostrich. Hmm. Because, you know, it doesn't seem like a, a natural creature that would be uh, out there in the Roman arena, right? Uh, but uh, the, the, the ostrich we're talking about here is not uh, the common ostrich that you're probably thinking of and that you would you know, can see at most zoos and, and, uh, and what have you. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, I was thinking when you said this, okay, there are some large birds I can't imagine in the arena. I was thinking about the cassowary. Oh, yeah. The, well, and then Cassowary the, is the scariest feed of anything I've ever seen. Well, yes, and ostriches can be quite terrifying close up for sure, and they can and they are dangerous animals. Uh, yeah, but but I have to admit, it wasn't like the first thing I thought about as being something that there would have uh, you know really suffered due to the pressure of Roman appetite. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what we're talking about here is not the common ostrich, but the Arabian ostrich or the Syrian ostrich, also known as the Middle Eastern ostrich. And it lived in the Near and Middle East uh, as opposed to the common ostrich of Africa that we still know today. Now, to be sure, the Arabian ostrich suffered under humans for quite a while. They're mentioned in in other ancient texts. Uh, They're even mentioned in the Bible. And given that they are giant birds, you know, they've always been something of a curiosity for humans. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and you see this as far east as China, where specimens were taken for display. 
But the Romans were, were also rather taken with them. And again, everything with the Roman Empire you can sort of see as like a leveling up of, uh, of, of, of appetite to a certain extent, but also just the ability to exert that appetite uh, on the natural world. Uh, so because, again, these ostriches, they were exotic, and they became something of a status symbol. You see them popping up on Roman coinage from, the, from that time period. Oh, same is true of silphium. Oh, yeah. Silphium, silphium was, was on, on coins. coins. Yeah. It, yeah, which just speaks to, like, what kind of value was put on these, uh, uh, on these species. But in the arena, the ostriches were made to pull chariots, to participate in other, you know, violent arena spectacles, uh, which, of course, tended to have a terrible end for the animal. Uh, but they were also prized in Roman cuisine, mm. uh, both the meat and the eggs. Uh, I was, and the Romans were omnivorous to an extreme. I mean, oh, yes. you can read these, uh, these cookbooks where you know, it seems like they ate, they tried eating just about everything. I, I was reading a cookbook entry in something earlier today with this recipe for, like, uh, parrot and flamingo, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, there were some very exotic dishes, uh, which, again, I think is part of just, like, the traffic of these exotic animals. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, there's a, apparently a really good book on it that I didn't have time to really get into a lot, but uh, Patrick Foss wrote one called Around the Roman Table, Food and Feasting in Ancient Rome. Uh, and, and he was looking at some Roman cookbooks, and uh, he pointed to at least a couple of, of ostrich uh, recipes, one for an ostrich stew and one for a boiled ostrich. So Boiled whole ostrich? Uh, no, not whole. Not whole. Uh -huh. You know, there were limits to what you could do. Uh, but then, I mean, outside of this, too, I mean, ostrich feathers were prized um, for use in ornamentation and costumes. Mm -hmm. But the Arabian ostrich, the Syrian ostrich, ends up surviving the Roman Empire, but they did not survive the pressures of the modern world. Uh, so they're thought to have gone extinct sometime in the mid-20th century. Uh, so they made it pretty far. But uh, again, this is a situation where you can't lay their extinction entirely at the feet of the, the Roman Empire by any means, but you can certainly look to the degree that the, the Roman Empire uh, added additional uh, pressure upon their survival. All right, well, I've got another one where uh, we don't have clear evidence that the Romans uh, drove a species extinct, but we, th there are some interesting clues about possibilities in history that, that may have previously not been imagined. So uh, let's, let's take a look at Pliny again. Okay. Pliny the Elder from his Natural History, Book 9, Chapter 5, and this one's the John Bostock translation, where Pliny is talking about Belina, the Belina and the Orca. Uh, and note in this passage, there's this word, Belina. It's believed to refer to some kind of, uh, you know, ketos, meaning like sea monster or big fish, uh, which, which for Pliny would include whales, but we don't, we think he's talking about a whale. We don't know what whale he's talking about. Okay, but this is where we get baleen from? Is it like similar etymology? I would assume so. So, okay. yeah. uh, so uh, he says, uh, the Belina penetrates to our seas even. It is said that they are not to be seen in the ocean of Geddes before the winter solstice. And at periodical seasons, they retire and conceal themselves in some calm, capacious bay in which they take delight in bringing forth. This fact, however, is known to the orca, an animal which is peculiarly hostile to the balina, and the form of which cannot be in any way adequately described, but as an enormous mass of flesh armed with teeth. <laughs> the animal attacks the balina in its places of retirement, and with its teeth tears its young, or else attacks the females which have just brought forth, and indeed while they're still pregnant, and as they rush upon them, it pierces them just as though they had been attacked by the beak of a Liburnian galley. And that refers to like a, a sharp pointed mm. 
ship. Uh, and, and he goes on and on about the orca hunting these Bellina. But all of it is, I mean, this sounds exactly uh, like everything we've discussed uh, regarding the orca in the past. I mean, this is like straight out of uh, a modern uh, documentary in which we get to see, you know, spectacular underwater footage of the orcas, or at least the uh, the, the the variety of orcas that, uh, that feed on whales going after them. Yes. I mean, it is an accurate description of things you might see in some parts of the ocean, except there's a problem. In the early part of this passage, he's referring to some kind of whale that retires seasonally to the shallows to give birth in the area around what is now Cadiz, so that's in southwestern Spain. Uh, But the passage has long been of interest to marine biologists because there are no whales in the region that match this ecological and behavioral description. And in fact, there are whales in the Mediterranean sometimes, but they tend to be, you know, like deep water whales that uh, do not retire to shallow bays around Cadiz to give birth. So what was Pliny talking about? Like, did he get the story mixed up? Is he confused about the location or about the behavior of the whales or what? Or uh, maybe was he referring to whales that once would have calved in that area but mm-hmm. no longer do? Now, there are whales that, that fit that ecological and behavioral description, but they don't live in the Mediterranean. A couple of examples would be gray whales, uh, which is, the gray whale is a baleen whale uh, up to about 15 meters long, roughly 50 feet, about 35 metric tons. Uh, and its worldwide range today has been reduced to a couple of populations in the northern Pacific Ocean. Uh, and one of its two population subgroups, the western group, is endangered. And then also it would fit the North Atlantic right whale, which is also a baleen whale, uh, endangered today. It lives in the northern Atlantic, as the name implies. It's up to about 16 meters or about 50 feet long and about 64 metric tons. And the right whale was a huge target of the historical whaling industry because they were valuable and they were easy to catch. And they were hunted to commercial extinction by the mid-1900s and nearly to biological extinction. They're, they're pretty much entirely gone from the eastern North Atlantic. There's a single population of about 500 individuals that survives in the western North Atlantic. And that's it. Interesting. So, you know, in terms of, of extinction, we've often touched on like the, the differences between extinct in the wild, uh, you know, absolute extinction. Uh, but commercial extinction is something I don't often think about, like yeah. basically depleted to the point where you, like the, the industry of whaling this particular animal uh, is no longer viable. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so let's come back to, to the whales in a minute. A, a different question. When was the first time somebody decided they could base a whole industry off of hunting whales? Now, we know that the hunting of whales in, like, individual cases goes back thousands of years, but the first known large-scale commercial whaling industry in history has long been believed to be the Basque whaling business of the medieval period. And there's no evidence that hunting of whales by humans would have happened at any scale large enough to have had an effect on whale populations before the Basque whalers of the Middle Ages. But there are earlier descriptions of whale hunting. Uh, Another piece of uh, ancient Roman literature we want to look at here is an awesome poem about fishing uh, by the 2nd century CE Greco-Roman poet Opian called the Haliutica. And this is from the Loeb Classical Library edition. It describes all kinds of stuff, you know, the way the the fishers go out in the boat and they stab at the whale with barbs and attach a hook to it with a rope and that they then attach the rope to water skins or or skins that are filled with human breath. And they're, of course, buoyant. So it's kind of like in Jaws, right? Oh, yes. When they spear the shark with the floating barrels. 
Um, but then uh, uh, Oppian writes, quote, Now when the deadly beast is tired with his struggles and drunk with pain and his fierce heart is bent with weariness and the balance of hateful doom inclines, then first of all a skin comes to the surface, announcing the issue of victory and greatly uplifts the hearts of the fishers. Even as when a herald returns from dolorous war in white raiment and with a cheerful face, his friends exulting follow him, expecting straightway to hear favorable tidings so do the fishers exult when they behold the hide, the messenger of good news rising from below. And immediately other skins rise up and emerge from the sea, dragging in their train the huge monster, and the deadly beast is hauled up all unwillingly, distraught in spirit with labor and wounds. Oh, that's grim. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's like, uh, I feel like Oppian's kind of a good poet in a way, but it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's a sad story. He seems to be delighted about it. <laughs> Though it does seem to resemble the shark hunting sequence in Jaws yeah. more than uh, more than st- it's not clear what kind of whale Oppian thinks he's talking about. Okay, so we know the Romans didn't have the technology to do deep ocean whaling, but is it, but is it possible the Romans did participate in more shallow whaling than previously thought? Uh, they certainly did a lot of fishing and fish processing. The Roman Empire loved fish. They had, like, fish processing plants, basically. They made stuff that's like, you know, modern fish sauce, like colatura, mm. uh, you know, salted fish products. So they were they were big on seafood and, and the fishing industry. But did they do any whaling? We, we didn't previously have really any evidence that that happened at any kind of scale. But a study from 2018 finds some interesting evidence that might make us question that. Uh, And this was published in Proceedings of the Royal Society B, Biological Sciences, 2018, by uh, Anna Rodriguez et al. And the authors here point out that whales are often archaeologically invisible, meaning when they die, their bones sink to the bottom of the ocean, and we just don't usually get much of a record of them. Uh, Even when they're, you know, caught or processed by humans, they tend most often to be processed on the beach. Right. And their stuff, you know, all the blubber and everything taken away, and then the bones just get washed back into the water. Uh, And this uh, study used DNA analysis of bones found in Roman and pre-Roman archaeological sites, I think primarily ancient fish processing factories in the Gibraltar region. And they found among the bones that uh, there were were remains of three right whales, three gray whales, but also a fin whale, a sperm whale, a long-finned pilot whale, a dolphin, and one bone from an African elephant. Not not sure what was doing at the fish processing plant. Also makes me wonder which, if, if this was truly, since this is not a study about elephants, if we're talking about the uh, uh, the extant uh, African elephant or the extinct North African elephant. Oh, yeah. I, I'm actually not sure there. Yeah. Uh, But so the authors used radiocarbon dating that placed the bones with an origin between 250 BCE and 525 CE. So that's the Roman Empire period. Uh, And the authors believe this indicates that the historical range of these two whale species, the gray whale and the right whale, actually included the Gibraltar region and the Mediterranean Sea as calving grounds at the time. So in the Roman period, the ranges of these two whales were, were very different. They were much bigger, apparently. And the authors write that when these two whale species disappeared from the Mediterranean, it was probably accompanied by, quote, the disappearance of their predators, killer whales. So you're not normally going to be seeing orca in the Mediterranean, Mm -hmm. right? But they might have been there to prey on these whales at the time. Right. And when their their main prey uh, vanishes, they have to vanish as well. 
Exactly. And then also they say, and, and a reduction in uh, marine primary productivity. And the authors also think that if these two species of coastal accessible whales were historically present, it might indicate that the Roman Empire had a forgotten pre-Basque whaling industry. Hmm. Quote, none of this demonstrates that a Roman whaling industry existed, but it in- indicates that Romans had the means, the motive, and the opportunity to capture gray and right whales at an industrial scale. Uh, and then also, quote, nonetheless, if such an industry did exist, it could have had an impact on the eastern North Atlantic populations of these two species, as it would have affected uh, pr- particularly adult females with disproportionate demographic consequences in these long-lived, slowly reproducing species. Thus, Roman exploitation may have played a role in the observed decline in Atlantic gray whale genetic diversity before the onset of industrial Basque whaling. Uh, so quite a few ifs there, right? Mm-hmm. We, we don't know, uh, you know, if this whaling industry existed and all that. Uh, but you can see how it's plausible that a Roman whaling industry could have contributed to the decline of whale populations in the Mediterranean and the Atlantic. But uh, I did just want to caution this with, you know, because not everyone agrees with how to interpret the study. Uh, So I was reading an article about this in The Guardian that cited a Dr. Erica Rowan, a classical archaeologist at Royal Holloway University of London. And she said the study does show that these whales' habitats once included the Gibraltar region, but that the small number of bones over the short time span found doesn't necessarily prove that there was a large commercial whaling industry in uh, in the ancient Roman Empire, which, of course, the authors didn't say they were proving that, but they just suggested it's possible. Uh, Quote, I think that if these whales were present in such numbers and were being caught on an industrial scale, that we would have more evidence, perhaps not in the zoo archaeological record, but in the ceramic record and Mm. the literary sources. The Romans ate and talked about an enormous variety of fish and seafood, and if the whale was widely exploited and exported, then it is strangely absent from many discussions. So she makes the point, yeah, you might not expect to find many physical remains because of the way that whales are often processed. Right. Um, but you would probably expect to find writings where people talked about the whale industry. Yeah, one of the, the Roman authors whose work survives to today would have uh, would have seen it, would have commented on it, would have been impressed by the scale of the industry. Would have or said, it, I ate it. Yeah, or, yeah, would have said that they ate it, would have recorded some sort of a recipe, or if not a, a recipe, then like, you know, some sort of record of what they were using, the, you know, what the, the various things they might have been processing the whale into. Yeah, uh, I can see that being a, a, a potential red flag there. So I guess the big takeaway today is that empires have consequences. They do. Uh, they have a lot of consequences, and it's, and it's I think, easy to, to overlook the consequences that they have on the natural world and have always had. And again, we have to think about this scaling up of human behavior as our, uh, you know, our modern uh, empires and our modern um, uh, you know, uh, nation states uh, continue to scale up what they're doing. Sometimes... Uh, uh, take into into account their impact on the natural world, but perhaps uh, not as much as uh, as should be the case. Uh, so, kind of a cautionary tale, I guess, from the Roman world. Yeah. Don't kill the elephants. Don't deplete the silphium. And of course, these are the mainly the the species. Most of the species we talked about here were things that their absence is notable because they were of value in some way. Right. These are the things that there are historical records of, of going missing. Right. Yeah. So, or being just, reduced or yeah, something. Yeah. So just imagine other species that were less remarkable or at least less um, valued or, you know, they, they weren't exotic creatures. You know, very think of the various rodents or insects or uh, birds or what have you that could have also um, been destroyed by Roman activity and it just didn't make it into the history books. Yeah. 
All right, so there you have it. As always, if you want more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, visit StuffToBlowYourMind.com because that's where you'll find them. And if you want to support the show, always the best thing you can do is tell friends about the show. Make sure that you rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. And if you have any thoughts on the uh, the organisms we discussed today, the histories we discussed today, if you have um, uh, additional ideas, if you have corrections, uh, additional organisms we might have missed uh, that went extinct or might have gone extinct during the Roman time or due in part to the Roman influence, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, to answer any of those questions Robert just said, or uh, just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.